Welcome to Chamberlain University's MSN CourseCast. Each episode in our series will introduce and discuss key concepts from the modules in one of your courses. These episodes are intended to enhance your learning when you're on the go, so feel free to listen to them anytime and anywhere. Hello and welcome to our Learning on the Go podcast for Nursing 518. My name is Dr. Allison Sabin and I'm a faculty member here at Chamberlain University in the MSN program. I appreciate you joining us today. I want to take a moment and welcome our guest, Dr. Tracy Stogner. Tracy was with us for our first podcast where we talked about population health assessment. And thanks for joining us again today, Tracy. It'll be fun to talk with you as we, sure. as we look at population health planning and intervention. Sure. Aloha. I'm happy to be here. Wonderful. We appreciate you joining us. Well, as we mentioned, in our earlier episode of Learning on the Go, our topic focused on assessing population health. We discussed what population health is all about and the different measures of assessment that we can use to determine population health risks, needs, strengths, disparities that might be present, and even those positive resources that may be out there for people to use and to promote their health. In this episode, we're going to dive in a little bit deeper and build on that information in order to discuss the analysis of those population health findings and talk about how they can be used to shape interventions to meet the needs and also to optimize health outcomes. We talked quite a bit about assessing the population health in order to get a, a snapshot of the health status of a community or a group of people. And today we're going to shift gears and take that next step about analyzing those findings to identify the disparities and to promote interventions to protect the health of the people. You know, Tracy, the title of this episode talks not only about planning and intervention, but it also highlights the importance of upstream thinking. That phrase, mm -hmm. upstream thinking, we talked about it just a little bit in our last episode, but it's yeah, a common can. phrase. Yes, you're mm -hmm. right. In public health circles, this phrase gets tossed around quite a bit, and I thought it might be helpful to unpack that phrase just a little bit. And I wondered if you could share with us some of that thinking, that perspective. What is upstream thinking all about? If you could just share that with us. Sure, sure. And it's just a wonderful way of looking at things. When you think of upstream, you think of dealing with things and helping. Um, prevention is kind of the word that comes to mind when I think of upstream. You're preventing the problem from occurring in the first place. So downstream thinking deals with problems that are already occurring. So I know one of the common analogies that you'll often see uh, when discussing upstream thinking is if you were in a river and you saw people floating down who were drowning and you were pulling them out of the river, you would want to go upstream to figure out what was causing that and prevent, you know, the people from falling in the river in the first place. So that's kind of how I like to look at upstream thinking. It's prevention. It's it's dealing with those issues before they happen, where downstream thinking um, has more to do with the things that are already happening. 
Right. Does that's that help? A, yeah, that really does. That's a great example too, because when we, you know, when we take that little journey upstream and we realize, oh, maybe there's a cliff that people are falling off of. Maybe we can <laughs> build a fence <laughs> or something. Whereas right. downstream, we're just racing after, uh, racing time to pull bodies out of the water, and that, you know, right. uh, certainly is less effective. Mm-hmm. Um, it's kind of an interesting image, but it's so good. It's it really does wrap up the. Yep. It does. Another thing, way that I like to think about it, too, is, you know, how sometimes we think of putting out fires, you know, mm-hmm. and so we're, we're, we're spraying the water and we're putting out all these fires as they happen, you know, problems that rise, arise and occur instead of preventing the fires in the first place. So that's another way to, to look at it. You're, you're, really, prevention is the word that comes to mind when you think about upstream thinking. That is great. That's a perfect analogy as well. And of course, we've talked quite a bit uh, in our class lessons about prevention being such a foundation for population health, mm-hmm. prevention, promotion, and protection of health. And really, mm-hmm. all of those concepts are wrapped up in upstream thinking. They're wrapped into that whole perspective. So yes, thank you. Thanks for sharing that. I appreciate you you uh, kind of sharing that image and I think it helps people to put a little bit of meaning with upstream actions as well. Sure. Oh yeah. So and, and this concept is a great follow up to our earlier episode where we did talk a lot. We talked about prevention. We talked about that assessment piece, assessment of an individual, the planning and intervention process for a population can also be viewed um, in a similar fashion. So just like the assessment of systems take place for an individual and a group of people, in both circumstances, assessment data is used to drive and shape our plan of care. So we're looking at the assess, we're assessing what's going on and that's how we know um, what types of things, interventions, we need to do to implement and make a difference. And, and that, you know, kind of that upstream thinking coming in. If we go upstream to find out what the problem is, is there a fence? If there's a fence, was there a hole in it that people are falling through? You know, that's just, you know, of course an, an analogy. But those are some things that we're doing and why assessment is so important because we don't know uh, what we need to fix unless we assess that piece first. So that's a really important thing. Population health interventions are designed to improve health outcomes and reduce disability. So in order to successfully intervene, it's important to be aware of the health needs of our population, um, any gaps or disparities that are present, availability and accessibility for use, for example. And I know, Allison, you had some examples you were going to share with us today in regards to this. Do you want to go ahead and do yes, that? Yes, okay. I know we chatted about that briefly mm-hmm. in our last episode. And you're right. I think it's so important for us to realize that the assessment does far more than just identify the problem or give us the information to identify a problem. But that same information can be used to help us design how uh, interventions, how we can mm-hmm. effectively make a difference and, 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 like you said, implement those upstream measures. Mm-hmm. Well, let's consider an example where perhaps you've been a part of a community assessment or a population assessment, and you find that there are statistics that reveal a high rate of premature and low birth weight infants mm-hmm. in a community. Let's just kind of take that as an example. So population health assessment was done and high rates of prematurity, high rates of low birth weight infants 
were found to be problematic. And one of the resources or supports within the region that you may have found through your assessment is a wonderful public prenatal clinic where services are available on a sliding fee scale. And it is just a phenomenal clinic that provides holistic care for prenatal and postpartum women. However, let's also assume that in this community assessment or this population health assessment, you also noted a pretty significant barrier within the region, and that was the fact that maybe transportation is quite limited. Perhaps there's a lack of public transportation services, mm -hmm. and perhaps there's a high percentage of impoverished families that don't have access to transportation. And so in that particular situation, you've got this wonderful resource, but accessibility is quite limited. Mm -hmm. And knowing that there is a need to improve those prenatal outcomes, and knowing there's a clinic available to provide the service that's needed, those are two really important pieces to the equation. However, when your assessment also reveals that lack of transportation, really a significant barrier becomes very, very evident. And so in looking toward a plan for how to address that situation, so now you have this information, um, your assessment data has provided you with a clear need with prenatal outcomes and a wonderful support or resource in a clinic but it's also revealed the barrier of accessibility. So you take that information and you use that information to help you inform and shape interventions that will get to the heart of the matter. And in this case, it would be super important for that nurse to collaborate with stakeholders and brainstorm innovative solutions for the transportation issue that seems to be contributing to the problem. And perhaps some innovative strategies could be developed such as vouchers for gas to, you know, to get a ride to the clinic or any other number of, mm -hmm. of sort of volunteer services and supports, grant funding perhaps even. Yeah, and I have a, a real life example uh, to that, Allison, if you like me to share. Oh, um, yes, yeah, that'd here, be great. Um, and I've shared this before on the previous episode, I'm from Hawaii, I'm from the island of Kauai, which is the northernmost island in the island chain. Our population is about oh, around 60,000, so it's fairly small. It's very rural here, and especially where I live, which is on the North Shore. So we don't have a lot of resources here. We have no fast food restaurants on this side of the island, which is a good thing. And one of the things they decided to build was this amazing clinic. And it was kind of started, or the, the thoughts of it was started actually when a lot of you are probably familiar with Bethany Hamilton and her shark attack when she had her arm bit yes. off. She was very young. Yes. And for anyone in those types of emergencies to get to the nearest hospital is at least an hour, hour and 15 minutes if you're on the or, or even an hour and a half if you're on the northernmost part of the island to get to the nearest hospital. So they had this idea of developing sort of this mid or lower level trauma urgent care. It's an urgent care built on that model, but it would have the capability of maybe for people to stop and sort of stabilize the person. And we have an airport, a small airport near here, near Princeville and maybe being able to transport patients that way. Anyway, that was kind of the vision of this clinic. And so they built this amazing clinic, so wonderful. And then right before it was to open, we had 
really big natural disaster. It was 50 inches of rain in 24 hours, which oh is my. unbelievable. And torrential rains, flooding, and huge mudslide. I say mudslide, but really it was half the mountain fell off. So hmm. that was a year ago, and the road is still not open. That's how big, oh when, when I, you say a mudslide, you just think of, you know, just a little bit of mudslide. This was just a catastrophic event, and it cut off transportation to the majority of our North Shore. So, you know, where people are trying to deal with flooding waters in the tropics, we get things like staff. Mm -hmm. And, you know, here we have this wonderful clinic to treat stuff like that, but people can't get to it. So you're right. They did some innovative things. So what we did is we got doctors and nurses together that went out into the to that community so they were led on boats they went out on boats because the road was closed so they went out on boats some of them um, some of them they did get it cleared enough uh, eventually for pilot cars to get through so we set up these oh, like little good. satellite clinics out there that to help deal with some of these issues that they were having from the natural disaster but it required some very innovative means bet, yes. uh, to be able to, to, to deal with some of that and work on some of that and now gradually the, I think the road is due to open maybe here in the next month or to, and so we're hoping that, you know, this clinic can now have more of accessibility for everyone. I mean, you're still allowed to come out, but you only in certain hours and you have to come out with a pilot car still. Mm, very safety reasons. Yeah, so it's just kind of an interesting real-life example about sometimes yes. stuff like that happens. You can have the best, you know, wonderful clinic, but people can't get to it. So. Right, literally, like logistically, yeah, literally, literally cannot get there. And it's <laughs> amazing right. to think that for a year, this mm -hmm. wonderful clinic that was clearly needed within the community yes. has not been able to be accessed in the way that it was intended. So no. I am sure the community must be really excited about seeing that road completed yes. and, and that access allowed. Mm -hmm. For sure. That is such a great example, and it reminded me of so many different things as I was listening to you share that story about the relationships within the community between individuals that were contributing to a solution when that problem uh, mm -hmm. occurred, and also then the community, at the community level, initiatives that were taking place, and then just across Hawaii, uh, in terms of the general society, they're building a, a system to address the need for mm -hmm. a trauma, low-level trauma center and mm -hmm. urgent care, and all of that to say, as I was listening to you describe that, and as I'm thinking about our example with the prenatal clinic, in both of those scenarios, as those solutions were created and developed, we can really see the impact of the social ecological model at work. You might remember a while back looking at that social ecological model as a framework. It helps us to understand how social influences can impact an individual's health, and mm -hmm. it also helps us to understand how we can utilize that social ecological reality that we all live in to develop interventions at different levels to promote the health of both individuals and the community. For example, we might include interventions that relate to a specific individual or a relationship with a small group versus community-wide or society-wide. 
Well, let me just give you an example about the prenatal clinic and how that fits in, and then we can talk about how sure. not only the trauma center or the, the urgent care follows in with this, but also I know you have some additional examples about mental health services that mm -hmm. fit this as well. Mm -hmm. That individual level, um, just as a quick snapshot of a review, if you're, if you're thinking back to the social ecological model, it often is envisioned in concentric circles with the individual level being the smallest. And this is where an individual client or a patient, such as the young prenatal client, can be impacted by her own individual beliefs or health practices. That individual can also be impacted at the relationship level. For example, if the prenatal client could be served through some mentoring programs or some small group support programs, Mm -hmm. That relationship level can also provide social support and coaching and intervention, basically, for some population health needs. And so when we think about those lower levels, like the individual level, we can, certainly can see how individual physical determinants or sociological determinants or perhaps your values or beliefs or your, your lifestyle practices, those are going to influence your health. Some of those primary and secondary preventive strategies might be able to promote that individual level. And the same with the relationship level. We want to create interventions such as a mentoring program that facilitates the health promotion of the at-risk population, in this case, through relationships, such mm -hmm. as a mentoring or a small group support. Mm -hmm. And then when we think about the next larger level, which would be the community level, Prenatal clients might be served through a women's clinic, such as we described. The community may have come together with some innovative funding and a lot of social service support to create a wonderful prenatal clinic because they saw the need and they wanted to reach out. It might be operating either privately through something such as a faith-based organization, or it might be part mm -hmm. of the public health system. But those efforts to come together and partner to provide service at a low cost or free, that's a wonderful example of a community level intervention. And then when we take it one step bigger and we look at society, of course, this can be really huge, such as mm -hmm. the U.S. or globally, but also even just such as in your case and looking at a state, looking at the society level health policies that might be instituted to support the population could improve prenatal health outcomes. For example, policies that would expand Medicaid services to prenatal clients and young children that might bridge a gap for people who are working but underinsured. Also, programs like WIC uh, or other nutritional supports might be available to just give that additional boost and through adequate nutrition for mothers and babies. And while the intended outcome of those programs is improvement of health outcomes at the population level, they truly benefit the individual on a one-on-one -on -one basis as well. So as we talk about the social ecological model, Tracy, I was thinking about your clinic, and I, or I'm sorry, your, yes, your urgent care, and also your examples mm -hmm. through, through the mental health work that you have done on the island. And I was just wondering if you could talk a little bit about those examples and discuss how they would also demonstrate that social ecological approach. Sure. Yeah, what's interesting is, and I mentioned this on the earlier podcast and pod, in our first one, but uh, in case 
you hadn't listened to that, just to give a reminder, um, in my community, when I looked at you know the top morbidity or mortality rates, suicide surprisingly was number five on the list for my community. And I knew mental health was an issue. It's actually an issue for our whole state. Part of that has to do with the fact that funding was cut a number of years ago to mental health services. And as a result of that, it trickled down. So in moving backwards, <laughs> if we mm, take the societal yes. impact of a policy and how it can impact a community and an individual, uh, that's kind of going backwards, but a change right. happened and it limited services. And also just being rural, we have a limited amount of providers. So, you know, one of the things that uh, we did at our college, for example, here our local community college, we had a health clinic. And um, me being a mental health nurse practitioner, I started providing mental health services to the students because there really wasn't a lot of uh, places for them to go. It was limited for counseling. If there was a counselor available, they were really booked. And so that sort of filled a need at just our local college. And, and the oh, only sure. people I could yeah. serve were, were those individuals that went to college. So you either had to be going to college there or a staff member. I saw both staff and college students. But that did serve a real need. And another thing, you know, one of the things we see here, and, and you see this everywhere you go, but a lot of uh, mental health and homelessness is something mm -hmm. that mm -hmm. um, is very much connected. So a lot of the, the homeless a majority, or not a majority, but at least a percentage of them are mentally ill or have mental health issues or substance abuse issues. And so one of the things that was looked at here to sort of help address that issue is a change in, in policy going to the societal. So this is to help improve. The other one we talked about sort of went backwards and did yes, some damage. Definitely yes, definitely Yes, this right. one, this one uh, was a house bill that, that tended to look at some of those lower level nonviolent offenses. So such as urinating in a public place, creating a disturbance maybe some drug and alcohol offenses where jail uh, would not necessarily be a benefit to that person. So they wouldn't really receive treatment there. They, you know, it, it wouldn't be a good option. So they introduced a bill that for these some of these lower level offenses, especially involving those with a mental illness and substance abuse issues, that instead of receiving jail time, they would receive treatment hmm, and in hopes that Again, improving those types of services because that's something that is, is a very big problem here in Hawaii. Homelessness is, mental health issues, and, and substance abuse issues are all problems. So that one policy is, you know, it just was passed. So hopefully, you know, we'll see over time some improvements uh, for people in regards to treatment and care and services. But Great. definitely that's, that's, a, that's an example. Definitely a positive step. And, and I appreciate those examples because as, as you were talking, I was thinking too that not only do they show us the different levels of influence and action that, that can be taken, but mm -hmm. it also is a really good picture of those three pillars of population health coming mm -hmm. together. We talked mm -hmm. about that in our first episode, yeah, the clinical health care system, partnering with the public health system, and then also using public policy to really drive interventions that are going to promote health rather than head in the other direction, as you pointed out. So this collaborative approach with a common goal and some shared 
perceptions there and, and, and a direction that everyone has agreed upon really can support interventions that will reduce disparity and, and promote, promote health outcomes. I agree, Allison, and those are really great points. And, you know, the examples we talked about, you know, bring to life that social ecological model and the pillars that you mentioned of population health and action. And in addition to that, in these types of interventions, um, the level of prevention can also be seen. True. That's I, very true, yeah. And yeah. I want to just kind of go over for a moment, just take some time to go over the different levels of prevention so students can have a little review of that. Uh, but if the first is primary prevention. Uh, those are efforts um, which occur before any sign or symptom of an illness or disease. So primary prevention efforts might include such things as education, vaccination, lifestyle modification efforts. Those kinds of things are considered primary. The secondary prevention, that involves efforts to assure an early diagnosis and an early intervention within the course of an illness or a disease. Some good examples for secondary prevention uh, focus on the area of health screening. So example, a, a blood pressure screening program for early detection of hypertension is a good example, or even a mobile breast uh, mammography service to promote early detection of breast cancer. Those are two examples of secondary prevention. And then uh, we have tertiary prevention, and that involves efforts that occur later in the disease process. So these are typically aimed at the restoration of health and reduction of disability, to the extent that's possible, of course. And some good examples at the tertiary level of prevention might include a treatment for cancer or a treatment for disease or chronic health concerns. So again, just hitting those important pieces of prevention and reviewing those I think I think is important as an important reminder. I think you're right. You're right, Tracy. And and I'm reflecting as I was listening to you talk about those, I'm reflecting on the examples that you shared uh, on mm -hmm. the islands and how mm -hmm. they fit in with primary and secondary and tertiary prevention. It's very mm -hmm. interesting. Yeah, and one of the, um, so a good example too, I have a great one for primary prevention, and I can't remember if I mentioned this earlier, but diabetes is, is, is one of the, the issues that we have here in Hawaii overall. It's just one of the top problems that we have here. Obesity tends to be an issue and, and therefore diabetes as well. But it got to be uh, such a big problem. And one of the things they did is they the community turned to our kids in our schools and we had a competition in all of the high schools across the state to come up with a public service announcement in regards to diabetes and diabetes prevention. And that, again, would be an example of a primary prevention. You're doing That's education. Yeah, and uh, um, it was a public service. The, the one that won and that was aired on TV, it still to this day is, is on the TV, but it was a public service announcement regarding sugary sodas and drinks to avoid and how bad they are for you. And, and one, of show, one of the images that just sticks out in my mind and, and my kids, I remember their reaction when they saw it on TV for the first time. They're like, oh, wow. But, you know, drinking this thing and it, you know, it's juice, but it's just full of globs of fat mm. and drinking. <laughs> it and how unhealthy it is oh, and um, but it, it, it really hit home the importance yeah, of how unhealthy yeah. these sugary drinks are for you and how it's best to, to encourage drinking water was the, was the point and making healthier healthier choices in diet so that was That's a, a great example, example. Mm -hmm. oh yeah definitely and I'm sure with as being a public service announcement you're reaching a lot of people so that's mm -hmm. a plus and mm -hmm. in that educational approach that's terrific 
And not only that, but it got the kids involved. So as they were doing this public service announcement, the, the ones that were working on these out throughout the high schools in the state, it increased their awareness, too, of the importance of, you know, because yes, kids are ones do. that tend to drink those monster sugary drinks sure. and uh, yeah. the caffeine and all of that. And so it was, it was good education for them, too, why they were working on it at the same time. So I thought it was kind of a unique way to, to address in, a, in primary prevention to address a problem like that. Absolutely. And then uh, in the same way, uh, you know, the secondary prevention, another fun thing that our community has, and as I mentioned, I live in a very rural area, so my eye doctor is, or the nearest eye doctor is about an hour away. So not everybody um, has the time when you're working all day, you know, then to, to drive an hour to take time off work to go in. So on the weekends, it's actually through the, the Lions Club. So the local Lions Club that we have here bought a huge, uh, it's a mobile eye clinic. And it actually travels throughout the state. So it doesn't, it isn't just here on Kauai, but they ship it on boat and it goes throughout the state to different areas. And when it came to our area, I went and because I wanted, it does, it did a screening for glaucoma. I have a high genetic component for macular degeneration. So I wanted to go see if that was an issue for me. And um, so it was. It was wonderful. It was a wonderful service that they they provided to the community. So that was that would be an example of secondary prevention. Yes, that's um, a great example. Great example and really unique opportunity for a community that might not otherwise have an opportunity to have vision screening. So that's a that's a great example. Yeah, and with diabetes, I think that's especially important. So I, I thought that was a really great service that they provided. And then one more example I just wanted to share um, hits back to the mental health component, and this is um, an example of tertiary prevention. So as I mentioned, mental health services are limited here, and that suicide is, is one of the top five causes for morbidity and mortality, and it especially hits our young people. And we here on the island do not have a place for youth for treatment for mental health, so it's inpatient treatment. If a youth needs inpatient treatment, they have to, it's a lot of screenings they have to go through. Oftentimes they're sitting just in our local emergency room waiting for a bed to open up on Oahu, which is another island. So the Queen's Hospital over on Oahu has an adolescent unit, and in the past, that's where our kids have had to go. So oftentimes, they're waiting in the ER for... Uh, less than ideal, isn't it? Yes, it is, uh, as they're waiting for services. And and then you have to fly them on an airplane, and they, you know, it's not like a medevac or something like that. They're just... <laughs> alone like everybody else so here you are stressed out and suicidal then you have to get on this plane and you have to go it's mm. just not ideal at all yeah. and so example of tertiary prevention for us is we're just in the process of building a youth clinic uh, inpatient type of setting for our kids and how wonderful is that that we'll be able to, to provide that service um, it was done through fundraising so, and, you know, had to go through a lot of red tape, surprising, you know, different areas and communities not wanting something like that in their backyard. It was kind of hard to find a place for it to settle, but finally found a place for it to settle. And I'm just happy that um, the kids on our island will be able to get some services in the way of, you know, um, drug and alcohol abuse and, and mental health services, I think is super important. Absolutely. I think probably when a lot of people think of Hawaii, they don't realize that those very same tragic health situations, physical health and mental health conditions, 
happen there as well. Mm -hmm. It's not just a vacation destination, destination, but it's a home. It's mm -hmm. a home for a lot of people and mm -hmm. a lot of people who are struggling with impoverished living and, and different, That's true. Um, different needs. And, and, you know, I think tertiary prevention is something that, as nurses, most of us may, uh, may even feel that we've spent more time working in that area than, mm -hmm. than in primary or secondary. Um, many mm -hmm. nurses dedicate their careers, really, to tertiary level care, um, hospitals and treatment and, you know, just those kinds of things where the diagnosis has already been made and, and now right. you're really looking to restore health. And, and so I think for a lot of folks, tertiary prevention rings true. It's something that's mm -hmm. a little bit easier to understand, even though that word prevention sometimes can be a little confusing because they think, well, what am I trying to prevent? It's already happened. But again, it's just kind of a level of that, that, um, those the primary, secondary, and tertiary level. We want to prevent further disability mm -hmm. and, and mm -hmm. restore the health. And, you know, before we close our, our episode today, one of the things I wanted to do, um, and this is really just reflective questions for us to consider. We've talked about the tertiary prevention most recently just now, but thinking back to your own community, and students, these are just reflective questions. You can just think about this as we as we um, kind of close this topic. What are some examples of primary prevention that are taking place in your community now? You know, Tracy was able to share some unique things uh, that's hap that are happening in Hawaii to uh, as primary preventive efforts. What's happening in your area? So many times we are aware of educational initiatives or vaccination programs or health promotion efforts, but taking time to really think what are the primary prevention efforts versus what are some of the secondary prevention efforts that are taking place in your community. Perhaps you have a mobile mammography unit or a mobile vision screening, or perhaps you have a blood pressure screening set up throughout the city on different days or glucose testing. Maybe there's something unique to your geographic area. As you proceed in the days ahead and just thinking about these concepts, look around your community and consider even within your own workplace and where you practice, what are some of those primary preventive efforts that are in place? And maybe what else might be needed? What are some of the secondary preventive efforts that you see? And where are the gaps? And then, of course, with tertiary prevention, in many big cities, tertiary prevention abounds, access to it may not, or in the case of, of Tracy's home, there may be limited tertiary level care, and not only is it limited, but if it's there, access to it is a challenge as well. Well, Tracy, I want to thank you so much for joining us for this second Learning on the Go oh, podcast. Sure. It was fun. I enjoyed it, Allison. Thanks for having me. Well, thank you for taking time out of your busy day to join us. And, you know, we explored so many different ways through um, the analysis of population health data and looking at how those findings not only identify the problems, but also are used to shape and develop meaningful interventions. So before we close, I just want to wrap up a couple of key points together. Remember that effective planning and intervention to promote population-level health is truly going to be dependent on that thorough, 
accurate assessment of the population need. Being aware of those available resources is also equally important or the gaps that are present. Assessment of the population health status will allow an opportunity to identify the risks, identify those gaps, and really have a clear picture of what's happening in your community. Assessing the population in the community where members might be living or working or playing, it also allows us to look at the resources they will use, those that are accessible, those that are not, and perhaps others that might be accessible with just a little bit of innovative thinking. So assessment clearly provides a critical foundation for not only the planning but also the intervening. And so in that way, assessment is really ongoing, much like it is when we care for an individual patient. Some of the primary ways that we can promote that upstream thinking and those upstream practices to improve population health will include the elements that we've been talking about today, outreach, education, raising awareness, communicating, vaccination and screening, being proactive with health policy making, and engaging with community stakeholders to come together with a shared commitment and shared solutions. So as we close today, consider what upstream actions are taking place in your community and how will you contribute to advancing the health of populations that live in your region? Thank you again for joining us and have a great week. Aloha. Now that you've explored some important concepts related to your modules, if you have not done so already, please turn your attention to the course materials in your online course for additional application and practice of these concepts.